Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Today we continue in our, in our series AD 30. We're going through a chronological path through the life of Christ, not necessarily hitting every event, every miracle, but generally most of them. And I've entitled our message, Relational Glue. And it was Jesus' vision for sort of how the church would hang in with each other and work things out when things went wrong between Christians in the body. Many mountain climbers regard Italian Walter Bonatti as the greatest climber of all time. In 1954, when he was 24, he was the youngest member of the Italian climbing team that became the first in the world to conquer K2, the second tallest mountain in the world after Everest. Wikipedia says K2 is known as the Savage Mountain due to the difficulty of ascent and the second highest fatality rate among the 8,000ers. Now, what 8,000ers are are this. There's 14 mountains. Does anyone know what this is? The 8,000ers? Anybody? All right, there are a few of you. All right. Well, certainly Carmen knows. All right. 14 mountains around the world are 8,000 meters or more, so they top out above 26,247 feet. So these are the 8,000ers. K2 is one of the most difficult for those who climb it. For every four people who have reached the summit, one has died trying. Mountaineer Reynold Messner told the Italian newspaper La Repubblica, Bonatti was just a boy from Bergamo who in a very few years became the best climber in the world and he had been envied around the world because he was too ahead of the curve. He was too alone, he was too good. But when Bonatti died at In 2011, at 81, his New York Times obituary focused much of its attention on a controversy surrounding that 1954 conquest of K2 that dogged him for the rest of his life. Although two members of the Italian team reached the summit, Bonatti did not. He and a porter were responsible to transport oxygen tanks to a camp at 26,000 feet, where they were to meet the other climbers who were waiting for them. Then together, the entire team was to make the final one-day ascent to the top. However, when Bonatti and his porter arrived with the oxygen tanks at the agreed-upon location, nobody was there. Bonatti and the porter had to spend the night camped in the open, where they almost died from the cold. The next morning, they left the oxygen tanks in the snow, they rushed down the mountain, and the porter lost fingers and toes to frostbite. It was a life-threatening situation. A few hours after Bonatti and the porter left the oxygen tanks in the snow, the other members of the Italian team appeared, took the tanks, went to the top of the summit, and they went to mountaineering glory. It was historic. Later, Bonatti accused them of deliberately missing their planned meeting place on the mountain. The others denied it. The Italian Alpine Club sided with them. From then on, Bonatti did much of his climbing alone rather than with teams. And for the next 50 years, the controversy over K2 lingered in the, t- in the uh, climbing community. Then in 2004, one of the Italian climbers who had reached the summit of K2 essentially admitted in a book that Bonatti's version of the events was true. They had left them there alone 
on purpose, and they took the mountain. When Bernardi died in 2011 at age 81, his partner, Ms. Rosella Podesta, at 77, said the K2 story was a big thorn in his heart. He couldn't believe that even after all those many years, nobody had apologized or acknowledged the truth. The falseness left a mark in his life. In his own book, The Mountains of My Life, Walter Bernardi wrote, my disappointments came from people, not the mountains. Indeed, forgiving others can be more difficult than climbing the world's tallest mountains. That has been my experience as well. That is probably your experience as well. And the church is no exception. I would add a little perspective to this. It was hurtful because the people who betrayed him were friends. They were teammates. They were peers. That's why it hurts so much. Because the closer we get to people, the more, in a sense, we've given them permission to hurt us. Because the bonds are stronger. Random climbers couldn't have left an emotional scar like those teammates could leave. Here's a sad story. In his best-selling book, The Telling Room, Michael Paterniti shares a story he heard when visiting his father's village in Sicily. Every day while he was in the village, he saw a very old woman walking with her cane, struggling up a steep road to get to the local cemetery. At her tortoise pace, the walk from her home to the cemetery and back took about six hours out of her day, and she walked it daily. For exercise? No. What grief inspired her difficult daily walk? Was she driven by sorrow or over a departed child or a deceased husband, the love of her life? No. The locals told Paterniti that she was driven by astio, bitter hatred. Her arch enemy was buried in that cemetery, so rain or shine, the old woman walked up the hill every day, six hours back and forth to her enemy's gravesite to spit on it one more time. That is a bitter female. <laughs> wow. I guarantee you those two knew each other well. And there was probably a point where they loved each other, which is what opens up our hearts to such great disappointment and hurt because it takes deep relationships to create that kind of a sense of betrayal, that kind of ultimate bitterness and unforgiveness. We are part of a movement that is expected that our hurts and betrayals are going to be worked out. I want you to think about that because we stink at it. We're awful at it. We're entirely unbiblical and disobedient with it but we are part of a movement that expects its hurts and betrayals to be worked out. The church was to be a relational home. We were not meant to move out of painful experiences and offenses and just move on without resolution. We were meant to lean into them and to resolve them. 
And Jesus speaks about this. He had just spoken about the dawn of the church age a couple of chapters before where we are today. And he said that the kingdom of God was going to move from Israel, which was a nation to be used by God in the Old Testament. Almost the whole Old Testament is Jewish in nature. God was going to use this people who he would elevate on the world stage as they obeyed him to be a light to the rest of the world. Well, now that was coming to an end and the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God on earth was moving from a nation now to a church, which was not just a nation, but people from all nations that would be bound together by their view of and commitment to Jesus Christ. So the kingdom of heaven will not be nationalistic, it won't be Jewish. It's going to be the church, people from all nations. This was a massive shift in salvation history. If you understand just that principle, you understand the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That is the difference. It's when it went from Israel to the church. But here's the thing. If you were Jewish in the Old Testament and another Jew hurt you, you had a system to work it out. You couldn't undo your Jewishness. You weren't going to leave the nation. There was a system in place in their legal code to work out hurts and pains. We find it in the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus wanted the same for the church. He never envisioned that we would just get hurt and we would drop out. He never envisioned going to the church down the street. In fact, we are to be a model to others. The world was to observe the church of Jesus Christ and want to join us because of the unity observed in our body, because we were able to set aside massive amounts of differences and come together and love each other. That's what the world was to see in the body of Christ. But I think we'd agree with the thousands and thousands and thousands of denominations around the world and the stories of most Christians. We don't do this really well. But like everything in scripture, we can start today in our individual lives being better. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, if you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one near you in the pew, hopefully. I think they've been put back there post-COVID. I could be wrong. Matthew chapter 18 is on page 15 in your New Testament, about three quarters of the way through this book, begins over with new page numbers, page 15, Matthew chapter 18. We're gonna begin in verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, and these are the most misquoted verses in the history of the church of Jesus Christ. This has nothing to do with a prayer meeting. If two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times, Jesus said to him. 
I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he didn't have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me. I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from the heart. Three simple points. It will be a little shorter today, hopefully, because we have communion as well. Relational glue begins with the premise that people hurt each other. Jesus is trying to give a series of admonitions about life in this new era. We're moving from kingdom of heaven is Israel to kingdom of heaven is the church. And so these are some principles for the church in this transition to this new way of looking at the kingdom. So one commentator called this chapter life under kingdom authority. You could just say it's relationships in the church. So the church because we're not Old Testament Jews, is loosed, eventually, the Bible points out, we're not under the Old Testament code. We're not under the Old Testament legal code. That was between God and Israel. So the church is gonna be loosed from the Old Testament Jewish code as it moves into the Gentile world, but we still need guidelines for how to function together. And chapter 18 gives us some of those guidelines what to do when things are breaking down between other Christians in the church. Chapter 18, verses 1 through 5, he talks about the importance of humility. Uh, verses 6 through 14, the importance of not being a stumbling block to yourself or others. And then verse 15, which we read, a process for dealing with offenses in the church. And then the last part of what we read, the extent of our command to forgive in the body of Christ. We're just looking at the last two sections of this chapter. But this whole chapter assumes human failure and dysfunction and offenses and hurts. And we should assume that too. The gospel that Jesus is talking about is going to soon bring together groups of people that have nothing in common. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, all in the same church. People with nothing in common before this. People who couldn't agree on a church buffet menu and still won't. Half the church loves bacon because they have good common sense. The other half, we can't have bacon and pork-based brats at our, at our get-togethers. 
the ultimate church battle, what to do with kosher issues. And circumcision was a big debate because Jewish men were circumcised. Do Gentile men have to become Jews in order to become Christians? That was the big church fight in Acts 15 in the early church. It's actually just hilarious. I love that passage, the things they debated. People were all in the early stages of their spiritual maturity. Many of them had come out of paganism. Uh, People had come from non-church backgrounds, if you would. People would be debating every possible issue until the New Testament was written, and then once they got it, they would still debate every possible issue. In fact, if you read the epistles, it is one book after another describing more dysfunction and more theological error in the early church, and most of the epistles are intended to correct them. Christianity would be and is messy because you're here, and I'm here, and we're messy. We are a movement of people that are destined to disappoint each other. Of course we are, because we're imperfect. That shouldn't be a shock. Every one of us, every one of us has a, the church did this to me story. A person in the church did this to me story. And I can guarantee you that mine is better than yours. And that actually wasn't a joke. But thank you for that. Everyone has a story. But Jesus never saw leaving or giving up on the church as a real option. Think about the historical context. You leave your, your pagan background, you're worshiping of false gods, or, or you were Jewish before and now you're Christian because you believe Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, and, and you're, in a, you're in a city in Asia Minor, maybe in Turkey, and there's a new church in, in Asia Minor. These people are following Jesus now, and, and you're there and you're excited because Jesus is God, Jesus is the Messiah. You're with all kinds of other people with all kinds of other backgrounds, and, and something happens between you and another believer, where are you gonna go? There's one denomination. There's one church in that city. That's the historical context. Jesus expected us to work our stuff out because that one church was the body of Christ. Now technically, I believe Matthew 18 here 15 and following, is about, not about offenses that happen between anybody on the planet. There are some principles that will apply, but it's about offenses within the body, within the church, because it begins, if a brother sins, then you're supposed to go. And, and interestingly, later manuscripts say, if a brother sins against you. So those words were added in later manuscripts. And so the question is, is this just about a brother sins and you see him walking away from God and you correct him? But if, when you get to Peter asking Jesus a question about this, Peter says, so if my brother sins against me, how many times do I have to forgive him? So this seems to be more about personal sins between people in the body. That's what we're talking about here. Some of the principles will be broader, but it's about what happens in this new community. Relational glue begins with the premise that we're gonna hurt each other. We don't want to, but it's gonna happen. Relational glue assumes a process of forgiveness and reconciliation or else. And this passage is going to shock you. 
It's a fascinating passage. Leaving conflicts unresolved was not an option in the mind of Jesus. Jesus wanted the church to showcase unity and love. In fact, he said the world would know we're Christians by the way we love each other. There was no room in his mind for unresolved pain in the body of Christ. And so the process that he describes looks back on Israel's ancient legal code. So some of it actually comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 and 17. So Jesus is taking some principles out of Jewish law, even though we're not under Jewish law, civil code, etc. He's taking those principles and he's pulling them forward into the church age and saying, hey, there's some things that we had Israel doing for thousands of years and now we're going to move them into the church. This is basically the process that Jesus outlines. So you're offended by somebody. Somebody does something. They hurt your feelings. Some of us said big feelings. They get hurt. The offended brother goes to the offender in the spirit of humility, and what you're looking for is some contrition, like, you know, you really hurt me, man. That, that I, I, I didn't know how we could be friends after that. And you're looking for that person to own some of what happened. You're looking for reconciliation. The goal here is not to do a gotcha. The goal here is to restore a relationship that existed. But now it's damaged. And so you go to the person who's hurt you and you're looking for some ownership and some contrition and reconciliation. Now here's where, that's, that's about where we all just drop it and say, okay, Jesus, first point, I can do that. And after that, if we get to the second point, I'm just walking away. I'm done. I'll find another church. I'll find another set of friends. But this is what Jesus actually tells us to do, which we all disobey. If that doesn't work, bring another friend or two and go appeal to that person again. Reapproach. So that you have other people trying to sort of convince them, trying to appeal to them to restore this. Now there's also a possibility, and commentators say this, they're also there to sort of establish what's been going on between the two of you in case it ends up going to the next level which is scary to us because none of us have probably ever seen this in our lives in the church, even though Jesus outlines it. And that is, if that person is still unwilling to try to restore a relationship with you, it's supposed to go to the church community at large. And if that fails, this is where the word excommunication comes from where Jesus says you treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, if you're not Jewish, you're, you're a Gentile. I'm like 132nd Jewish, which isn't enough to really feel Jewish. But I'm like 132nd Jewish. So I'm a Gentile, you're most likely a Gentile. And Jesus said, if that doesn't work, you treat him as a Gentile or a tax collector. Now, I've actually heard a variety of views on this. Haddon Robinson was a teacher of mine in my doctoral program. I think some of you know him. There's a history with Bethany here. And he actually viewed this as you keep treating them with love, like Jesus said, to treat Gentiles and tax collectors. But this was written to the Jewish community, and most commentators do not agree with Haddon Robinson on this. Most believe this means absolute excommunication. Now, I just want you to think about that. That is how important unity and reconciliation in the church was to Jesus. That we could not go on as a body 
with unresolved conflict. Think about that for a moment, and now think about your experience in the church your whole life. We don't even try. And now the most misapplied verses in the New Testament, verses 18 through 20, after Jesus makes that appeal, then he says, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. If two, or, if two or more of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. This is not about a small prayer meeting. This is about God's presence in these sort of judgments, in these almost judicial proceedings, in this setting where people are getting together, trying to decide how to work something out. He's saying, I'm there in your midst in this process of reconciliation. Now, I am under no illusions about this process being embraced in the 21st century church. It's just too easy to walk away. But that's the problem. Because we've created a version of Christianity that never requires accountability, that never requires forgiveness, that never requires reconciliation, that never requires the church to stay together in any meaningful way. Would we all agree on that, at least? We've kind of created that. And there's always a church down the street and in a metropolitan area of 1.3 or 4 million, there's 100 choices. So why would I work out anything with my Christian brother or sister? We're so individualistic. It's hard to imagine most Christians being on the receiving end of a concerned brother or sister. We don't even try. So we go through life filled with unresolved pain, never creating biblical reconciliation, adding yearly to the list of people that you don't want to run into at Stampede unless they're in the middle of the arena, or Canadian Tire, or Superstore, or Timmy's. I've heard you can't call it Tim Hortons. The Canadians, real Canadians call it Timmy's. You just don't want to see them because it's painful. Relational glue assumes a process of forgiveness and reconciliation, and one that we pretty much abandon. And third, relational glue is sustained by our willingness to match the incredible forgiveness of God. So after Jesus lays out the reconciliation process, Peter has a logical question. You know, Peter's thinking, okay, there are people that are EGRs, EGRs. A biblical term for extra grace required. And Peter's thinking, okay, I can forgive the, you know, the average person, but there are going to be some people out there that just annoy me to death. What's the limit? What about someone who I really struggle with? How many times do I have to forgive? Now, interestingly, this was actually an actual rabbinic debate throughout history. How many times do we have to forgive? You can't make this stuff up. So rabbis would get together and say, you know, what, what, what should we say about this? Because certainly people who do the wrong thing and keep doing it over and over and over, there's a limit. 
And the consensus among rabbis was that a repeated sin is to be forgiven three times. So if, if I have a problem with my brother here and he does the same thing three times, that's the limit. Now he can do something else three more times, so there's more than just three forgivenesses. I mean, he might offend me in five or six areas, so it might be 15 or 18, but the reality is this one specific offense three times, on the fourth, no forgiveness. So it's not three strikes you're out, it's four strikes you're out. But the rabbis talked about this, and that's the limit. So when Peter asked Jesus, shall I forgive my brother up to seven times, Peter is thinking, Jesus, I'm the man here. I am Mr. Grace. I'm going way, way above rabbinic tradition. Should I forgive my brother seven times? Because that's who I am, Mr. Forgiveness. And Jesus says, well, no. How about 70 times seven? And of course, Peter's doing the math. He's thinking 490, and that's not even what Jesus meant. What he meant was, no, it's unlimited. Your grace to other people is intended to be unlimited. Now again, we're talking about offenses here in the church. I'm not talking about civil issues where you know, you're forgiving a violent criminal and you let yourself be around him again. This is not talking about that sort of thing. This is the body of Christ in the church when people annoy you to no end, you want nothing to do with them, you're to have this endless attitude of forgiveness. And the basis for that unlimited forgiveness is what we have received from God. Now, I don't know how bad you think you've been. You might think it was really easy for God to forgive you, and it was nothing really that you had done that wrong. I'm going to tell you, as your pastor, it took a boatload of grace to get me in the kingdom and to keep me there. Without God, and my wife can attest to this, there is no telling what I would be. Because even with God, I'm not that precious. We will never have to forgive at a higher level than God has, but we are to forgive like he has forgiven. So what's the basis? What's the proof of this? Well, Jesus tells a story. He says there's a Middle Eastern king, and he has a debtor. You know, sort of like a king who's lent a nobleman a ton of money. The debt was 10,000 talents. Now, if you look at a variety of commentators, they're going to they're gonna sort of guess at what that would be uh, today, and then with inflation over a couple thousand years, the debt was 10,000 talents. If you just take the, what's at the bottom of the Bible in the pew and look at how they interpret this, they would say one talent equals like 15 years worth of wages for a commoner. So one talent in the ancient world would pretty much pay for the price of a highly valued slave. It was a slavery culture. It was a part of their economic system. System. So you would pay a talent for a slave, it would be the equivalent of about 15 years of labor from that slave. So that was a fair amount of money. 10,000 talents, which is the amount this king lent this nobleman, is 150,000 years of wages for a common laborer. Think billionaire here. This guy is basically indebted to the king almost like He's a billion dollars in debt. It is an impossible debt, and it's due now. 
you know, and he's, he's gotten, you know, he's just gotten into it deeper and deeper and deeper, and he's probably doubled down on his debt. It's due today. The solution was the king brought him in. The debt couldn't be paid. The debt could never be paid. The solution was I'm selling you and your family to pay the debt and everything you own, and I'm going to take pennies on the dollar. It won't even be that, but I'm going to set an example of you. And so that debtor, that nobleman fell on his face and begged for mercy before that king. And he said, I will pay it all, no matter how long it takes, even if it can't be done, every moment of my life, I'm gonna try to repay that debt. But since it was beyond what he could ever pay, and the king knew it, but he saw his contrition, the king didn't say, yes, you can pay it back. He said, I forgive it all. That's you with God. An enormous debt. The debt of your choices, the debt of my choices that can't ever be fully repaid. That debtor was owed by somebody else, so he owes 150,000 years of wages. And he's got a dude who works for him who owes about three months worth of wages. 100 denarii. A denarii was like a day laborer's wage. So about 100 days worth of wages. And he couldn't repay it. He's farther down the economic ladder. But rather than display and repeat the kind of mercy that he had just received for his 150,000 years of wages debt, he's not willing to cut the guy a break who owes him 100 days worth of wages. He grabbed him choked him, he threw him in prison, and he demanded full repayment. The people who observed this just couldn't believe it because they knew what, what that nobleman had just received. So they go to the king who had forgiven this great debt, and they say, you're not going to believe this. You let this guy off the hook for this monumental debt, and he just treated somebody who owed him just a little bit horribly. And the king found out and he reversed his decision. He says, that's how God feels when we don't forgive each other. Which is really hard. Because for some of us, for me, who didn't have an easy early life and pretty committed to justice and fairness, it's probably the hardest thing for me to do. We are asked to give grace and forgiveness just like we have received it. We can't receive an ocean of grace from God and refuse just a drop of it to a fellow Christian. It's not Christianity. It's not who we're intended to be. Just a couple apps before we wrap up here. Galatian, relational glue apps. God assumes hurts in the church. It's not about broader issues. It's hurts in the church. It may apply to some broader issues, but that's the context. Second, God expects forgiveness and reconciliation in the church. There was no church down the street Shouldn't be our first go-to option. I'm not saying there's no reason to leave churches. I think you should leave churches over doctrinal deviation, heresy, apostasy. 
but it shouldn't be because somebody offended you and you're unwilling to work it out. The idea of the home church, I give up on church. I'm just doing home church. I'm just doing Jesus and me. I'm just gonna be a Christian following Jesus, but I'm ignoring the rest of the world because Christians hurt me. I gotta tell you something. There's no such thing in the New Testament as, as that. There's no such thing as a loner Christian. The Christian on an island, it doesn't exist. It's not Christianity. Because you're supposed to reach the world. What are you gonna bring them to, the church of you? because you're the only good person who's better than the rest of the body of Christ, so you've got your own church at home, and it's the church of you because you haven't hurt you bad yet. And so anybody you convert can only come to the church of you. There are a lot of people functioning that way who call themselves devout Christians today. It's, it's not Christianity. I don't know what it is. You've got an infatuation with Jesus. That's great. But you're ignoring the rest of his cause, which is the body of Christ trying to reach the world. Third question, then, do I extend grace and forgiveness as one who's been forgiven of much? Well, this is hard because without going into a lot of detail, there's a lot of variations of this. The Bible says as much as possible, live at peace with all men. You know, a lot of us have hurts and pains outside of the church, the body of Christ. It might be from our family. It might be from other churches, other people. I've got some of that. You're never going to hear what you want to hear from those people. There's never going to be real contrition. You're never going to agree on the story. But as much as you can, you want to clear those things from your heart. I think it's Anne Lamott who says, forgiveness is sort of when you just decide it's no longer necessary to hit back. For some of us, that's as good as it's going to get. You're not going to get reconciliation. But we do want to be the kind of people who extend grace and forgiveness because of how we've been forgiven. And finally, do I need to approach anyone for grace and forgiveness? Have you hurt somebody? And you know it, but why would you ever deal with it? You've both gone on with your lives. You deal with it because it's the right thing to do. I made two phone calls this week to people who I care about and love because I knew that there had been something that had gotten between us a little bit, and I knew it wasn't a huge deal, but I wanted to make sure we were okay, and they both went wonderfully. Do you have that habit in your life where you know something is not right with you and somebody else, and you're gonna check in with it? Herbert Melvin's Moby Dick tells a story of revenge and obsession. We all know the story. Captain Ahab, a whaler, loses a leg to a white whale. Smoldering anger begins to grow in the one-legged captain. His anger grows into a fixation and revenge against the sea monster. As his lust and hatred grow, so does his lack of wisdom. And on his next whale hunting trip, the driving force in his soul begins to override good judgment, putting him, the crew, and his ship into insanely hazardous situations. Common sense is overruled by his wild passion for killing the white whale. All else is secondary. As the captain hurls man and ship into the perilous seas of hate, his opportunity to take vengeance finally arrives. The white whale is in his grasp, chases it for three days. Everyone around him realizes that Ahab's folly may mean doom, not for the whale, but for themselves. And a man named Starbuck, founder of Starbucks, just saying, 
Ahab's first mate, and the only one who dares to question the captain, says, Oh, Ahab, not too late it is, even now the third day to desist. Moby Dick seeks you not, it is you, you that madly seek him, but it's too late. His desire for revenge grows deeper, ignoring every danger, and in the end the ship is lost. The crew, all but one, is lost. You know, there are a lot of Ahabs in the Christian community who have just been so hurt by something, it consumes their lives. And it's the first story you'll hear from them when you talk about why they don't go to church anymore. It's the white whale sitting at First Presbyterian or First Baptist or Bethany Chapel that they've never gotten past. It's the whale in their lives. And when you've got a whale in your life like that, it robs you and it robs me of the rest of your life. God, we thank you for your word. And I pray that you would help us to be the kind of people who resolve the issues in our lives. You saw this coming. You saw the church you intended, you founded it, and you knew that in the church there would be imperfection, we would hurt each other, but you intended that we would always remain united and work out our issues and that the world would see a a loving community that would be an example, a model, and, and how far from that we are, and we know it. But today's a new day, it's a fresh day, and I pray that in each of our hearts we'd be more committed to fulfilling more of your expectation in this area. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again, and God bless you.